the nature of the extortion that is typically accompanying many of these ransomware operations is getting more and more severe. So for example, you can expect if you are a company of significance, not only will you be harassed and compelled to pay, but sometimes even threatened. We've seen instances of these threat actors or ransomware operators calling competitors to give them an edge to embarrass, to increase the sense of urgency, dumping data as a piece of it and then threatening to dump more, calling the press. So as people are preparing for ransomware, it is getting more complex. And as you run your tabletops and get sort of prepared, which everybody should be doing, the other thing to think about is, is your PR or comps person in that tabletop exercise? Because threat actors are starting to make public conversations around ransomware intrusions. And that this is really done in order to compel the individuals or the company to pay in any way they can. Welcome to another episode of Mandiant's Defender's Advantage podcast. I am your host, Luke McNamara. And today, for our final Threat Trends episode of the year, joining me for a look back at 2022 and some thoughts on where we're headed, I have the pleasure of welcoming on Sandra Joyce, Vice President for Mandiant Intelligence, now part of Google Cloud. Sandra, great to have you here today. Well, thank you so much for having me, Luke. I love this podcast. Well, great to finally have you on. And we're, as I mentioned, going to talk about some of the trends in activity that we saw this year, some of the things that that really defined the threat landscape. But where it probably makes the most sense for us to begin is the other big thing that really happened this year, kind of separate from the external threat landscape, which was what happened here with the Mandiant family, by which, of course, I mean the, the acquisition and joining of Google Cloud. So I guess starting there, when you think about this journey that Mandiant has been on and sort of the evolution and how we got here and the significance of this next steps, you know, what really comes to mind for you with this? Yeah, I mean, we could start really broadly with that question. And it's a great question because Mandiant has absolutely taken a journey. I mean, when you think about the beginnings of the internet where there was a democratization of information, we saw threat actors then start to compete geopolitically online. And that created the space for companies like Mandiant to be born of, you know, the the need to defend against these threats. Because at the time, the government was focused on the dot mills and the dot gov domains. So you had this sort of company full of, of great expertise and through, you know, acquisitions of eyesight partners and in, in, in a stint with FireEye, et cetera. You know, you really had this coming together of, a view of the external threat landscape and the expertise that came from those observables. And with where we were always limited, however, was that, you know, Mandiant was comparatively a, and relatively a very small company to be tackling these very big problems. So with the acquisition by Google, what that does is it really lets us evolve to the next step in this, which is, how do we scale our expertise now globally? And that is something that we really couldn't do before. And now with the technology innovation of Google, a company that is, you know, people, people talk about wanting to change the world, you know, it's almost become a little bit of a cliche, but now we've joined a company that actually has, 
change the world. So that that's pretty exciting stuff. And, and the scaling of, of Mannion's expertise of the, the insights that we have, there are intelligence. I think that that's going to be, it's a natural step and it's an important step for us and for the security community. Well, speaking about the security community and the customers and partners that we all serve or involved in and kind of the work that we've been doing for them, you know, 2022 has been a very, very busy year, I think, with respect to what we've seen in the threat landscape. What are some of the things that really has defined this year for you in terms of what sort of the the larger ecosystem has experienced, the sort of trends that we've seen? There's so many different things that have happened, but what has been sort of the, the hallmarks of this year that sort of come to mind for you? Well, you know, we can't have this conversation without mentioning Russia, Ukraine, right? I mean, Russia's invasion of Ukraine started earlier in 2022. But as you know, Luke, we we started the uh, preparation for that many months before when we we saw indications that, that things would possibly go in that direction. What I'm very proud about is that in the lead up to this, hundreds of many employees pivoted to support Ukraine. And that was because it was important to them. It was important for democracy. And it was important because such an injustice was being done. And, you know, so we learned a lot in these several months of, of you know, being on, on what we call the cyber front lines. Some of the things that we've learned um, are kind of important to think about as we go forward with, you know, cyber being part of, of the domain of conflict. So, for example, we know that the Russians had persistence in networks for years before they acted on them. And that's something important to think about because organizations really need to know if they're compromised because that is how threat actors are going to gain the ability to conduct an action at the the time and place of their choosing. We learned that as Russian troops were traversing and taking over territory that there were embedded cyber action teams because we would see that certain parts of networks would be taken over The lesson there is make sure that you can segment networks and shut them off if they are, you know, taken over by uh, by advancing forces. These are just really interesting things to learn when cyber is a major component of what is happening in an otherwise kinetic war. We learned that they would use influence operations in 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 three major ways. One to to promote Russia and, you know, things like underreporting casualty statistics in Russia so to kind of bolster their image. They used it to drive a wedge between Ukraine and its allies, and they used information operations to try to degrade the morale of the Ukrainian people as well. So lots of, you know, lots of things that we learned and, and continue to learn from the, the travesty that is the Russian invasion of Ukraine. One important shift that happened, though, that that we observed was um, a shift to not de- being completely dependent on on-prem and sort of closed off environments. Um, one important way that companies and organizations could help the Ukrainian people, and the Ukrainian government was through cloud, right? The getting the access scale very quickly, standing up infrastructure uh, very quickly and um, making that pivot was an important part of how we could help the Ukrainian people defend themselves. Now, I want to also talk a little bit about something else that has taken place in the, the geopolitical space. Um, and this is maybe shifting a little bit away from the Russia-Ukraine conflict, although it was certainly present 
as you noted, which is information operations. Yeah. And I think our IO team, uh, like always, has done a fantastic job in the research they've been putting out this year. I think in particular, some of their work around uh, the networks of activity around what we call Dragon Bridge or high energy uh, were pretty notable. And I think especially interesting this year was seeing this shift. You know, we're familiar with disinformation. We're familiar with information operations in the context of elections, in the context of other sort of larger geopolitical issues. But I thought it was interesting to see the expansion of that activity this year, particularly with Dragon Bridge, where corporate entities now maybe saw themselves in the crosshairs uh, for the first time in a way that they hadn't in the past. What are kind of your thoughts on that? And do you think we'll see that as a continuing trend going forward? Yeah, what what always surprises me here is that, you know, Dragon Bridge, we do not have clear attribution on who's behind Dragon Bridge. Let me, let me be very clear about that. But what we have noted is that they are highly and closely aligned to the interests of the Chinese government. And we have been tracking them since around 2019, where they started out. What we observed was the discrediting of, of Hong Kong protesters and narratives around that. And they kind of grew from there. We're looking at now over 10 languages that they operate in. These campaigns are, you know, pretty platform agnostic. We saw them on 30 different platforms and systems. And their aim continues to be to try to drive a narrative that is anti-democracy, pro-PRC. One notable example in the recent research that I found to be to be really interesting was a video that was produced that dissuaded Americans from voting and and showed imagery of, of, of January 6th and tried to really play on the divides, uh, you know, that exist in our country and said the only way to make change is to decapitate it from the head instead of voting, which is a, a really direct assault on democracy itself. Voting is, is one of the, the, the key parts of, of a free uh, and democratic people. So, it's really interesting that as we see uh, Dragon Bridge evolve and grow, even in spite of are their continual outing in the public space. So we have been tracking Dragon Bridge for a while. Google's tag team has been tracking them for a while. We have other external organizations and researchers doing excellent work in this space. And even with all of the exposure, they continue to do this work and to grow. Um, so we know that they're going to be here for a very long time. With respect to the kind of the corporate side, you know, as, as we see them, you know, shift their their messaging, at least in the case of uh, what we saw this year, um, the rare earth mining sector. Is that something even that you think um, more corporate entities should take seriously? It's a remarkable development uh, because with this particular campaign, what we saw was Dragon Bridge in this campaign, trying to discredit activities that had to do with rare earth mining. And they would, uh, you know, get into these social media personas, they would put them out there, they would talk about how they were, they didn't want these activities happening in their community. But these weren't real people complaining. This was Dragon Bridge, an information operations campaign that was trying to disrupt these activities because they compete with the rare earth mining activity that, that China has. So if you think about your, as, a, as a commercial company, not only are you having to deal with ransomware, not only are you having to deal with you know, breaches of your network in other ways, but now you actually have to think about the influence operation that could be targeting your organization if you run counter to 
uh, a threat actor country's uh, best interests. Um, so that's something that leaders and organizations haven't had to think about very much before. Uh, so it's certainly a shift. Well, so this is a great segue to what I think you are a fantastic person to speak to, which is you see all of the, the intelligence we produce here at Mandiant, but you're also having a lot of conversations with senior executives and policymakers. When you look back at activity like Dragon Bridge, or you look back at any of this sort of campaigns and activity that we've seen this year. Are there certain areas where you think that maybe there's areas of cyber risk that these executives are not taking as seriously as they should? Or there's just a, dis- a discrepancy between kind of what's happening and what's evolving in the threat landscape and maybe where people are still thinking, you know, several steps behind? Well, I think that ransomware is a great example of this because things have certainly evolved quickly and not in a good way. So I remember being, you know, giving keynotes about ransomware and the growing problem. And it went from sort of smash and grab, you know, few hundred Bitcoin when Bitcoin wasn't worth very much um, less than it is now. <laughs> and now, you know, we've seen ransom demands in the 50 millions, right? So it certainly has gotten, the scale of it has gotten bigger. People may not realize that the the actual individuals that are intruding your network may be working with other individuals who actually deploy the ransomware and they've never met. They don't know each other, right? They, they have been put together through um, mechanisms in the underground where they, you know, ransomware operators have matched skills and intent or have recruited affiliates. So there's a whole ecosystem and an entire lucrative business model on the other side of ransomware operations that isn't really truly appreciated or understood. The other piece is the nature of the extortion that is typically accompanying many of these ransomware operations is getting more and more severe. So for example, you can expect if you are a a company of significance, not only will you be um, harassed and compelled to pay, but sometimes even threatened, We've seen instances of these threat actors or ransomware operators calling competitors to give them an edge, to embarrass, to increase the sense of urgency, uh, dumping data, you know, as a, you know, a piece of it, and then threatening to dump more, calling the press. So as people are preparing for ransomware, it is getting more complex. And as you run your tabletops and get sort of prepared, which everybody should be doing, the other thing to think about is, is your PR or comps person in that tabletop exercise? Because threat actors are starting to make public conversations around ransomware intrusions. And that this is really done in order to compel the individuals or the company to pay in any way they can. So that that's sort of the startling evolution or, you know, of, of ransomware, more severe, higher ransom demands and a, a lucrative business model that continues to evolve that underpins the entire uh, ransomware economy. And it's something, you know, as you pointed out, it's an evolution of beyond just the, the technical component of files or systems being locked down is a sort of more creative way that these actors are targeting the brand of organizations that they're trying to extort. That extortion itself is continuing to evolve. That's right. And, you know, in many cases, we see extortion with no malware at all. And that's really, you know, we, we've long said that that's the direction that this is going. You don't need to deploy any malware 
if you can extort. Um, and there's there are plenty of tools out there to do that. So I should probably mention uh, one of the other, I guess, important things we did this year on the threat side is the graduation of APT42. Um, nice to see us return to graduating APT. We had a couple uh, fins in there in the interim last year. So back to the nation state stuff. And this is an Iranian actor, you know, tied to the IRGC. And, you know, this wasn't something that we kind of anticipated, I think, at the time. But what are your thoughts about the significance of that graduation, given that this is a, an adversary that focuses on high value targets in particular, how to focus on civil society and, and activists and now some of the protests that we're seeing, you know, in Iran, um, sort of the significance of that graduation of a threat actor. Yeah, it's interesting the timing with the Iranian protests and, and this uh, organization. You know, the order of how we graduate APTs has more to do with what our observables are, how, you know, can we create a high confidence picture with the data that we have? But it, it certainly is timely uh, because of what's happening. So, I remember a time where we used to say that Iranian threat actors in the cyber domain were not sophisticated, that they were sloppy. Um, We don't say that anymore. You know, they're doing some pretty interesting things with their credential harvesting. They're, you know, they're conducting very, very personalized spear phishing campaigns, fewer errors, very sophisticated things that would fool even a cybersecurity professional. So we're seeing an evolution in their asymmetric capability, right? They, you know, Iran is a country under tremendous pressure, sanctions, they have no real ability to to oppose uh, militarily or diplomatically at this stage, nor, uh, nor economically, cyber creates a great equalizer for a country like Iran. Uh, and they are putting a lot of effort into taking these steps. So you talked about this a little bit already, but one of the things that I think we wanted to touch on in this is sort of the the look ahead to, to next year. And this is a great time to be having this conversation because we just put out the forecast 2023 takeaways. And I think this is one of the more difficult things sometimes to do in intelligence work, which is extrapolate out how the threat landscape in any domain is going to change. Um, it's not magically, you know, once the calendar clicks over that we're going to see this massive change in the motivations of certain actors or their TTPs, et cetera. But there are some ways that I think, you know, certain trends that maybe or we've already been seeing for some time are going to increase or amplify. And we have seen these sort of sea changes of, of behavior in the past where all of a sudden, you know, the extortion of by using data leaks becomes more prevalent for ransomware actors. And we start to see that take over as a tactic. So when you I know you had a role in putting together a lot of these these um, sort of takeaways and uh, anticipations of what we might see. What were some of the things that it were kind of top of mind for you that folks should be looking out for and that we might see emerge uh, in the coming year? Well, I'll take this opportunity to go back to Russia, Ukraine. Like I said, there really are a lot of lessons there. One piece that we learned a lot about that I think we're going to see a lot more of in the coming years is the close association of, of hacktivist activity with APT activity. And the way that we saw this play out was you know, a group called Hacknet, which we haven't done direct attribution or, you know, direct linkages to the Russian government. However, we saw some pretty interesting things. So one interesting thing that we observed there was that, you know, within 24 hours of the GRU intruding in a network and stealing data, we saw it spilled on a telegram channel that is run by an hacktivist group called Hacknet. 
we saw this multiple times and also some, um, some other observables led us to understand that this was uh, at the very least linked. These two entities were linked. Um, we saw with um, Killnet, another sort of hacker collective where, you know, the Russian government in trying to kind of signal to the United States, um, they DDoSed multiple airport websites around the country. And we attributed this to Killnet. And even though we can't say, okay, they're, they're 100% linked to the Russian government, what we're seeing is a, at the very least a collaboration. And possibly in the future, we'll see that there's direct linkages. But what we're learning then is that in a state of conflict or even in a, you know, when when cyber operations are, are happening that stem from governments, we can expect to see hacktivist groups as an extension of that activity. And we saw evidence of it now. And I think that we're going to see that in the future as well. Some other things to think about for next year, we saw cyber criminals and nation state sponsored groups using ransomware against countries. We saw this with uh, cyber criminals you know, uh, deploying uh, ransomware to Costa Rica. We saw it, uh, you know, the Iranian um, nexus groups that were targeting Albania. This type of activity has been a long time coming. And what I mean by that is so much of the ransomware operations that are compelling certain behaviors were obviously being observed by nation state actors and by, by cyber criminals. Smaller countries that don't have strong cyber capabilities or have a, a high reliance on the civil services that are being targeted, that is a tactic, unfortunately, I think we're going to see more and more of. And do you think we will see more of this evolution? Obviously, ransomware doesn't seem to be going away, even in North America, but you know, maybe other regions where we'll expect to see it grow faster as cyber criminals will look to, to monetize access in those regions where maybe they've not faced as much of a ransomware problem in the past. Yeah, interestingly, it's hard to count ransomware. You know, it's it, even at Maniat where we were doing, you know, a th- over a thousand breaches a year. We we have a subset, right? We have a sample set of ransomware, so we can we can extract from that. It's a significant sample set, but hard to count nonetheless. But one way that we can count, or at least quantify the behavior of ransomware incidents, is to count the victims that are uh, indicated in dumping sites in the underground. So these shaming sites, where you know if if you decide to pay or you decide not to pay, sometimes your data will be spilled on these sites. And we count that. And what we saw was a shift in the proportion of victims, you know, from North America to Europe and to European targets. So we saw a 10% increase in displacing towards European victims. Now, the, the why is still up in the air. One could say that, you know, they don't pay and that's why it's increasing. You could say that, just overall ransomware is increasing in that area. But, you know, what I'm thinking is probably at least partially uh, responsible for this shift is we are making it more difficult and expensive in North America to conduct ransomware. And once that happens, you know, ransomware affiliates, ransomware operators, they're going to look for softer targets. Perhaps they're finding it in Europe. Any sort of anticipations we've we've touched on this a little bit um certainly in the context of russia 
when you think about the sort of geopolitical situation that we're in, what are some of the areas of crisis or potential friction where groups that we've seen associated with some of the big four, where those groups might evolve their operations or look for opportunities in the coming year? Well, I I think it's hard to answer that question without mentioning the China-Taiwan issue. So it's a very, very topical. When Nancy Pelosi visited Taiwan, she was the highest ranking person to visit there in almost 25 years. And what we learned from that was that it did start a flurry of, you know, disruptive DDoS style attacks back and forth, you know, from the mainland to Taiwan and, and vice versa. Uh, we saw defacements. We saw that type of activity. You know, with North Korea, what we've seen and what we'll continue to see is their interest in cryptocurrency. Um, they are a, a huge innovator in the space. And as they are, you know, blocked out of the traditional financial, international financial system, they have leveraged their cyber capability to fundraise, whether that's directly targeting banks and financial institutions, groups like APT38, for example, or targeting crypto infrastructure or leveraging and abusing other platforms to do crypto mining. There is a a lot of innovation on the part of the North Koreans in this space, and they will continue to do what it takes to fund their nuclear vision. And what we can probably expect also is a lot more of these very creative attempts to uh, infiltrate tech companies. A few months ago, we were all made aware of how North Korean uh, units were actually interviewing with tech companies and trying to get jobs in these companies, trying to do these sort of remote interviews that turned very strange very quickly. But we would ha- we'd be remiss if we didn't assume that some of them did get hired, right? Using fake credentials and and you know passports and other documents that are readily available in the underground, copies of them are fakes. So it's something that you know every industry needs to be very very careful of. But you know that has been a focus and will continue to be of North Korea. So the adversaries across all the different motivations and and areas that we track, they're going to continue to innovate. Um, They're going to continue to expand and get more creative. Shifting gears back to a little bit of the the first question, which is, you know, around this new era from Mandiant as part of Google Cloud. What are some of the things that you are most excited about going into 2023 of the work that we're going to be involved in, in doing? You know, it's not specific to just our group. But I would say this is something that I've observed is that cybersecurity workers, researchers, analysts, reversers, all of us often love the mission and hate our jobs. And what I mean by that is a lot of the innovation has been happening on technology that protects the perimeter, that is, you know, email, network, endpoint. But how much innovation has happened for the day-to-day work of security professionals? And when I think about things like the cybersecurity workforce shortages, when I talk to CISOs, they are struggling to provide real tools for their, for their workers on the front lines. They're still using Excel and copy pasting and doing these sort of manual tasks. They love the mission, but the work they do is inefficient. 
So what am I excited about? I'm excited about focusing on projects that are going to make cybersecurity workers love not just the mission, but to love their jobs too. How's that going to happen? We're looking at projects that are going to innovate in that space. We're looking at taking Manian expertise, Google innovation and technology, and see what we can do to do our part. How much of, you know, I've seen, heard statistics of, you know, 800,000 cybersecurity worker shortages. If you took the FTE hours and you kind of just parsed out how many of those are wasted on inefficient workflows, what would that shortage really look like? So those are the things I'm very excited to tackle coming into Google. I'm excited to make that kind of impact in the industry. In 2023, we're all looking for the end of the Russian invasion in Ukraine, but we will continue to do what we can to to support there as well. And I'm sure there's a massive cheer to all the network defenders and analysts listening to that when they hear about workforce optimization improvements and workflow improvements. Any sort of final thoughts as we kind of wrap all this up? You know, I think I have the best job in the world. You know, there are a lot of jobs in intelligence that are really great and have a great mission. But I think running Manian Intelligence inside of a company like Google, I think I have the coolest job right now. And I think it's because of the nature of cybersecurity uh, professionals themselves. You're, you'd be hard pressed to find a more curious, committed, creative, and flat out intelligent group of people. So for leaders that are listening to this, just make sure you take care of them. Because We've been running nonstop for quite a long time. It's, you know, it, from, it's gone from, you know, solar winds, log for j every, you know, there's always a new crisis around the corner and just making sure that leaders are taking care of their cybersecurity workers because they really are burning the candle at both ends. So making sure we take care of them, make sure they get what they need. Excellent. That's a fantastic point to, to leave it on. Tanner, thank you for your time today, for, for all your insights in summing up what we saw in a pretty chaotic 2022. And uh, for everyone listening, we'll see you again next year in 2023 and be back at providing more insights into what will be probably a continuously evolving landscape with all the challenges that uh, we'll face. So thank you for your time today. Take care. Thanks, Luke.